This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I think in Jewish framework, actions speak louder than words. At a certain point, if you have actions that are not matched with, I'm sorry, if you have words that are not matched with actions, you're simply not doing anything. You're reading a script. So it's a question you can ask from an ethical point of view. Is there any value at all to reading the script when you don't fully identify with with it? I don't know if it's a particularly Jewish question. Hmm. What point you're just reading the script? Now, there are times when reading the script may have a certain value. Let's say that I'm truly sorry for what I did, but I don't necessarily feel that way. I understand logically that I did the wrong thing, and I understand that I have an obligation to try to make amends and to try to alleviate the harm that I've caused. What do you do then if somebody says, are you really sorry? I could honestly say, I really want to make amends. I'm really not completely sorry the way I ought to be. And I'm really approaching you now because I want to go on the path towards really being sorry. And that can be a meaningful kind of repentance. Mm -hmm. It could be meaningful for the person who's being approached to say, The truth is, I really don't forgive you, but I appreciate very much the effort you made. And I look forward to the point where relationship will be improved and so on and so forth. Hmm. That is a meaningful moral action. And it has religious value. You're trying to do what's what's right. Uh, There's no guarantee that you'll succeed in the first attempt. If I speak in terms of normative Jewish law, uh, and we leave God out of it for the moment, we talk about offenses against other people, the halacha, the law, uh, there is no law that requires me to mend my relationship with the person I offended. There is an obligation to make an effort to do so. And from the point of view of the offended person, I don't know if there's an obligation to forgive there is a strict obligation not to be callous, mm. not to be hard about it. So there are a lot of situations that are complicated and that you can't always deal with in purely legal sense. And you can't even deal with in prescriptive psychological sense. I recently saw an analytic philosopher who raises the possibility that a person may try to make amends and the offended person would say, I'm sorry, I really don't forgive you, but I appreciate the effort you made and I don't see any need for you or any value for you to renew 
your application for forgiveness. Normally, you would think that if somebody wants me to forgive them and they say, not now, that would really be an invitation to renew the suit at a later time. It's a very meaningful thing for somebody to say, I, I'm very offended, I'm angry, I appreciate your coming to me, and let's talk about it next week, let's talk about it next mm. month. Yeah. But you can have a situation where somebody says, you did everything you could do, I'm sorry I'm not forgiving you, but I'm, I'm not asking you to, to do more. I'm not putting more pressure on you. Those can be meaningful moral moral situations. Vis-a-vis God. Well, same- well, before you get to God, can I ask you about another situation? Because yeah. God's going to be a big one. <laughs> um, what about, not maybe an obligation, but just the process like you've described here of maybe a group of people who have participated in some kind of system or organized or inchoate of that that's basically wrongs some other group of people and you can think about like my ancestors who fought in the confederate uh, on the confederate side who were definitely participating even if not directly in some kind of wronging of uh black slaves um is there is there any room for a process there or like you know can we just leave it as is or is there some lingering sense where there needs to be some uh mending in a legal jewish sense i don't think you really have that offenses are between individuals uh there are discussions what happens if the person you offended is dead And that includes the possibility, I don't know how often people practice it, but it would include the the practice of going to the cemetery with a group of people and publicly asking forgiveness from the dead person. This is a codified point. The question of asking forgiveness of a group of people, well, how exactly are they supposed to forgive you? What exactly are you supposed to do? How do you go about doing it? And what makes me, as president of the United States, or as any other position, what makes gives me the right to speak in the name of all these other people? Yeah, this is Ellie Wiesel's uh, "The Sunflower Problem," right? Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I didn't remember who it was who said it, but uh, I think that's correct. I, does anybody know what we're referring to? Uh, where the Nazi officer like grabs him on his way through and kind of realizes what he's done and says, please, can you, can you forgive me? Him, the lone Jew in the room. Uh, can you please forgive me for all of these horrible things that I did? And I, I think he basically said, well, that was no. Simon Wiesenthal. Oh, that was Wiesenthal. Sorry. The Nazi hunter. And then he sent that short story to a whole group of people and asked them, how would you react? Right. That's right. That's right. And one reaction would really be, uh, I'm not here here to speak in the name of other people. Now you can make this a little bit more complicated. Can a mother forgive in the name of her child? Hmm. And there, that question becomes a more difficult question. You, there you could really say that the third person does have the right to speak in the name of, of the people who were harmed. The other question is a pragmatic question. 
whether sometimes a certain kind of rapprochement is important for a variety of ethical or political reasons, even if you say that technically you can't really have repentance. The German, go- the West German government, for whatever reasons, made a very serious effort to make amends, express itself in reparations and, and other things. But Conrad Adenauer did not have personal responsibility for what the Nazis did. Hmm. His hands were clean. Certainly, David Ben-Gurion, the Israeli prime minister at the time, did not represent the entire Jewish people and particularly the victims of the Holocaust. And he was criticized for arrogating himself the right to negotiate on behalf of the Jewish people. He was very open that his interest was what's good for the state of Israel, and he acted in that light. And there were people, including uh, my review teacher, who said, you know, we can debate. We said this 10 years later. Uh, at the time, I think he may have had a sharper position, but I, I only know what I was around for. And uh, the Rav, Slovacic, said, look, we can talk about whether reparations were good or bad or permissible or not permissible. My quarrel with you is that you took a position that the interests of Jewish people are identical with the interests of the state of Israel. You didn't consult world jewelry. And that was a criticism made in effect on the grounds of political theory. A leader of a state does not have the right to speak in the name of the Jewish people. Again, you can claim that those moves were important. It would seem to me that the German people in the 1950s were not on board. There was too much leftover Nazism, including people who were high up in the Adenauer government. Those actions probably did a great deal to prepare for the next generation where one hopes that things were, the attitudes were healthier. Now, I know that in Africa, uh, you did have the the commissions on truth and reconciliation. Uh, I know that there were people who accused the architects of that policy of injecting Christian ideas into a secular political context. Well, you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I don't leave open. Uh, but the secular argument that could be made is that if you wanted South Africa to move ahead, uh, this was a good process, even though part of the process meant that whatever came out in those discussions could not be taken to court. And that way, you know, if people did horrible things and they came uh, for speaking publicly about it, for confessing, they got off the hook. And you could object to that notion. It was a notion that came up in the United States. And I'm not sure what the state of affairs is now. It was a case of wrongful death. The person at fault was the doctor. The family sued. The doctor said, in effect, if it helps the family at all, I would like to be honest and to talk about the mistakes that we made. The only thing is my insurer does not allow me to say that. Mm. 
And at that point, a member of the aggrieved family who happened to be a member of the state legislature, I think Pennsylvania, uh, advocated a law that would enable uh, perpetrators of malpractice, medical or legal, to speak openly about their failures in the context of repentance and reconciliation, and that they would not be held legally responsible for it. And then there was a debate in the legal journals. Is that really repentance? Or if you're taking repentance without risk, you're not risking anything. You're not risking persons being angry about it and not forgiving you the way you want to. Uh, is that really a phony repentance? So the repentance that you've been describing, uh, A, uh, is clearly a process. Um, it's not necessarily a point in time where we say, okay, I ask for forgiveness, you are forgiven, we're done here. Everything that you've said kind of indicates that there's a lot coming into it and some things even coming out of it, even if that's the outcome. Uh, B, for Israel, as you pointed out in the essay that you wrote for The Biblical Mind, um, God commands forgiveness. Uh, so that puts another uh, ethical thorny knot in here. Where are you, when you're doing what God commands, or, performa? Yeah. An obligation to forgive the offender. There is a prohibition of being callous. Yeah, but if if God commands repentance, so so now we've we've taken God out of the 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 out of it so far, but we're putting God back in. For Israel, you. You have to seek repentance from God, right? Uh, as you pointed out. Um, so, because I think a lot of Christians, you know, Protestants, especially the tradition that um, that I'm in, they look at Catholicism, they look at Judaism, and they say, well, they're just going through the motions, right? So even with the words and the the forgiving, and they're they're going through these rituals, they don't mean any. And, and the fact that it's done by memory or rote makes it even less meaningful or whatever. Uh, that's that's the common assumption of a lot of people. So it seems like in a, if you add on to that and God told them to do it and they're just doing what God told them to do because they're scared of him or some other, you know, that they'll uh, go to hell in the Protestant Christian world. Um, do you still see that there's a proper function there for repentance, even if God does command it, even if you are kind of going through a script, uh, some kind of a script in some way? that it, you can still have the goods of repentance in that system? Let's say you're not religious and you think that repenting and forgiving is a morally good thing for whatever reasons. The question still is, how much are you really going through when you, when you say these things? And again, in the secular world, it can be even more common that you bury the hatchet, as they say, until next time. Exactly. Uh, <clears throat> So the, the real issue here, if you believe that this is the right thing, regard, leaving aside how, what your moral system is, whether uh, your morality is based on divine command or divine desire, you can do something as God wants you to do it, even if God doesn't command you to do it, uh, or whether you have some independent conception of ethics, and you believe that God commands you to, to live that way, 
either way, the question is, are you really being sincere? There's a point where uh, I went in for a serious surgery. The doctor told me, you know, you, you have these are percentages of dying on, 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 the, uh, on the table. And, uh, and he said, look, it's not because of anything that I'm doing. There, there are people out there who are going to have a heart attack or a stroke and they just choose the wrong time. Right. <laughs> but I knew there was such possibility. Uh, and five o'clock in the morning, I was uh, I was getting ready to go into the operating room. And I said to the person with me, I said, I want you to do one thing. In the event that I don't come out of this, I'm giving you the right to state that I went out of this world without any personal anger at anybody. And I thought there are people out there who might, it might be relevant to them. But I thought about that. It was from the moment that, uh, that I knew that I was going to have the surgery, I thought, you know, I have to be in the state of mind to do this properly. Uh, you have the thoughts, uh, Jews very often will ask forgiveness before Yom Kippur. Oh, yeah, can you, yeah, can you uh, really quickly uh, say what Yom Kippur is and why that, why they Yom Kippur that? Is the 10th day of the seventh month in September or October. Uh, it's a day where, in, during this is a temple, where various rituals performed in the temple, which will not detain us right now. Uh, it is also a day for individual repentance towards God and as, as well. I'll leave it at that. And I remember a Slovakian once saying to me, and I, I never repeated during his lifetime, I was afraid that somebody might be hurt by it. But he said, you know, the couple of days before him, Kippur, you have all these people, I never talk to them. They never talk to me. And they call me and the day before him, Kippur, to ask my forgiveness if I if they offended me in any way. He said, well, how could they possibly have offended me? They don't spend time with me. I mean, the only thing that they, they do is, is, is make me drag myself to the phone a few times <laughs> on that day. But there are situations where there is business that you want to transact. And I would think that serious people think about this very seriously hmm. before. And even more so a purely offended party. There is a story, which is either funny or tragic in the Talmud, it was a certain butcher who had uh, offended the Amora Rav, one of the most important Babylonian rabbis. So before Yom Kippur, Rav thought it was his business to maybe put himself in proximity to the butcher, to give the butcher an opportunity to make amends. And the butcher did not. The butcher was sharp and, uh, uh, you know, insulting. And Storm Talmud said that as he was working on the meat, a bone flew out and severed his jugular. Mm. Now, uh, you think about that story, and when I bring it into class, when you think about it, it's on the one hand, in purely legal terms, it means you should make yourself available that way. Uh, it's something I've seen people do. But if you're doing that, you, you have to be prepared that if the person says something, 
you have to be prepared to lead the person in the right direction. You can't just stand there and say, are you going to ask forgiveness now? No? Then the hell with you. Right. You have to be ready for that next step. And the question that raised sometimes, is it possible that Rav, in addition to just being available, is there something else that he that he should have or could have done to make this process easier? And that can be hard work. Hmm. So I hear you addressing the sincerity and the intent. I think one of the confusions uh, can also be that the feeling of sorrow or sorriness for something that you've done is identical to the repentance itself. Uh, and you highlight from Jonah, which Jonah is interesting for lots of reasons when it comes to issues of repentance, but, um, you know, because even the animals are wearing sackcloth and ashes, you know, but, um, but it's that God, it's not that he just heard the Ninevites repent, but that he saw their deeds, right? And that's, that's where the repentance seals in, seals the deal for, for God himself. Um, so again, uh, I, well, here, let me run an idea past you, and you can tear it apart if you think it's wrong. Uh, I have the same problem with ritual, where when I ask, well, what makes a ritual work in, in the Torah? And students will say, well, you're, you have to be real sincere when you give the ritual. And I'm like, well, but what if you abused your, the foreigner who lives with you, and you abused your children, and you, you, know, you scandaled, you, know, you swindled money out of people, and then you go to give your sacrifice for atonement, right? And they're like, well, as long as you're sincere in that moment then you're good and i'm like okay well here's the problem to me this is like saying i didn't prepare for my exam at all right i had this really big exam coming up i didn't prepare at all but when i go in i really sincerely want to do really well right um and it just has no effect whatsoever uh, on the actual exam that you take and so i wonder if there's something similar or parallel going on with this view of repentance that Sincerity, as you've outlined, it matters. It, it forms and shapes the way you approach people, the way you make yourself available to people and reconciliation. Um, but sincerity can't be the only tool by which repentance is measured. To begin with, offenses against other people, the rituals don't help. The uh, law is very clear. There's no repentance until one has made the effort to appease or to make amends with one's neighbor. And that everything else uh, stops at that point. Repentance in halachic terms, which would involve both man and man and man and God, involves certain components. And they were first formulated phenomenologically and, and uh, legally in the Middle Ages. You read the Bible, you read the Talmud, have some idea of repentance and if you're a theologian you can you can try to extract certain notions and I get paid for doing that but hallelujah you <laughs> go to the medievals and uh, uh, see what they say and there you have a certain number of components in different order and different emphasis which involves regret no repentance without regret it involves confession. It involves resolve for the future. So you could very well say that 
at the most urgent level, the result of the future is its most important. Mm-hmm. You know, I would ask somebody in the street, would you rather that a person change his way of life without feeling regret or feel regret and not change your way of life? I think we know what's yeah. is better. But all these components are essential. All of them are, are required. Does that make repentance impossible or very difficult? If you can't muster everything, then you really don't have anything. At a purely legal level, you could say so. Either you repented or you didn't repent. In the modern literature, and the person I'm going to quote now is Rabbi Cook, who's the chief rabbi of Palestine, from 1920, 1935, he was hmm. an important uh, 20th century thinker. Uh, he has a, uh, a book compiled called the, the Lights of Repentance. And I'll quote two things from him that are relevant now. He says, you know, you read the ethical handbooks, they tell you that you have to do things in order A, B, C, D, that everything is gradual and one step is, is built upon the other. And he says, all of that is true. And he didn't want to challenge the traditional way of doing things. However, whatever a person does is meaningful, even if it's not in the prescribed order. Uh, other thing that he wrote, he said, to every level of repentance, there is a level of forgiveness. And again, whatever you're doing, it registers somehow. Because otherwise, it really becomes a, an impossible mission. Call a comment, my uh, very august mentor, Aaron Lechtenstein, sorry, it's incestuous. He was a Slovakic son in law. Hmm. But that's, uh, there's a reason for that. Anyway, uh, he once gave a lecture on repentance, which set up a very high standard. Uh, it's a standard that he might have related to. He's a person, when I eulogized him, I said, he's a person who never outsourced an obligation, as far as I can tell. Very intense. But after about an hour, an hour and a half of this phenomenology, he said, well, where are we? I said, I know that we repent on Yom Kippur. And then... After a while, we're sort of pretty much back where we were before. He made this offhand comment that when a person looks back, not at a week or a month, when you look back at decades, you should see progress. It was an important comment for me. Because, you know, we, you try, uh, I don't know, by Huttner, in a very different tradition, but who also was a teacher of Lechenstein. In his books on Russian and Kippur and the days of, uh, of repentance, 
he sometimes makes a remark about how these days are supposed to change you. And he always would add, change you for the better. As if he needed right. to emphasize that point. Yeah. Rabbi Joshua Berman, who we had on here talking about repentance as well, he wrote an article, and I forgot who it was for, but it's essentially, you know, he says, nobody ever asked for forgiveness in scripture. Like nobody actually says, I'm sorry, forgive me. Uh, there's not even any really language for that. Uh, but he still thinks there's something like that going on in scripture. So you, you've been discussing repentance and in, in the essay for us, you, you put some biblical touch points on there, numbers five, of course, and Jonah and some other places. But it seems to me that the Torah presumes some things that everything that you've been discussing is kind of fleshing out what's the direction that the Torah is taking you, the direction that the prophets take you. Um, but why do you, what would be, you know, grand speculation? Why doesn't the Torah just say all this? Hey, like, because it's, it's giving lots of commands about interpersonal relationships. There are uh, enough examples in the Bible where people express regret and sorrow, and they want to make amends in some way. We certainly have examples of that. Right. It's like Jacob and Esau when they meet again. Well, there again, you may say it's political. Yeah, <laughs> he's trying not to get killed. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, please uh, bear with me. And the question is is that purely practical or is that heartfelt? Here, I think the problem without having attended uh, Josh Berman's presentation, I think very often uh, Bible scholars. Uh, tend to play down the emotional contact of biblical material. Hmm. Uh, I can give you chapter and verse, uh, a piece of scholarship that are respected, that are treated seriously. But the writers, in effect, are saying, Number one, their bias is in favor of a political reading rather than an existential reading. And if you're reading in political terms, then uh, whatever happened between Ted Kennedy and Carter on the floor of the Democratic Convention in 1980 when they shook hands and, they, and raised their hands together, that's repentance, even though we don't know how how sincere they were at that point. So you tend to think in political terms. Uh, you also, in effect, are dealing with a record in which the emotions are not that clear cut. Mm. Uh, if somebody would speak about our experience today, some come 100 years later, and they would say, well, these words for repentance and for sorrow and regret these are all political words. They're part of a certain dance of reconciliation. And they mean nothing more or less than that the person who's a weaker position wants to reconcile or certain things you say to the king. Uh, one example I'm thinking of is a, an article published about 30 years ago about love in the Bible. And the author said, well, 
you have all these vassals who are writing to the Hittite king or the Assyrian king about loving the Assyrian king. Why should we take love of God any differently? So there are two elements. I think one is the what I'd call the political bias. The other is a real difficulty of defining the phenomenology of emotion. Mm. What do we mean by these terms? And I have to deal with certain biblical words that in modern English could be translated as anger, disappointment, a whole bunch of English words. And I don't know how to translate them. Mm. Some of them, the word ragaz, in modern Hebrew, it means to be angry with somebody. When I teach Bible, very often I play it safe. I say agitated. Mm. The agitated is neutral enough. It can cover a multitude of emotions. Uh, we look in modern English, which presumably we all speak, the change of the meaning of the word embarrassment. And to us, embarrassment today is a kind of shame on a, on a low flame. Mm. You know, we're not more careful than that. Until a couple of hundred years ago, it meant something much different. You really talk about an embarrassment of riches. Mm. It was a normal use of it. So you have these difficulties there. I have a colleague, Aaron Mermelstein, who has written books on the concept of emotion in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he's presented some of his work to, to the uh, colleagues. You really feel for him because his job- oh, I can imagine. <laughs> then my job, when I'm discussing modern literature and I want to deal with things there, or if I'm dealing with Bible and I can hide behind what the great exegete said about these right. emotional experiences. I think we, we, we overdo that. What is interesting is that we, we really don't have examples, clear-cut examples of forgiveness in the Bible. God forgives, the word salach, yeah. God the word kiper, like in kiper. Right, to atone, yeah. Does it mean covering up the sin? I, that's the one I like, but... There are various etymologies. Yeah. Uh, in a modern scholarship, very often based on which other Semitic language you want to draw analogies to. Uh, if you limit your focus on medieval commentators, they have their own agenda. We have God forgiving that way. Jacob says about Esau, I will cover his face, I will do kippur by offering him a gift. And you go to the great medieval commentators and they discuss what exactly does that mean. Mm. But forgiveness, uh, if you want to define it in modern terms, is there an example in the Bible that is completely clear-cut? Joseph and his brothers. Right. But he doesn't use the Hebrew word salah. He doesn't use the magic Hebrew words. Right. Salah, yeah. He, he says, don't, please don't bother. You know, everything has worked out for the best and so forth. Is that... 
an act of forgiveness, a performance of forgiveness? Is that a verbal performance that facilitates forgiveness? You know, I could say, you did terrible harm to me, but I forgive you. But you really like forgiveness that reestablishes a relationship. You would really want it to be lubricated a little bit better. Right. And you could say, I really was hurt by it, but. Or you could say, which Joseph says, you know, it all worked out for the best. God did it, not you. Is that forgiveness or is that really a way of cheapening what they did of saying, look, I forgive you because I didn't really notice it anyway. Hmm. Is that real forgiveness? Yeah. Real forgiveness of the sort that we've been discussing now is not when I step on somebody's foot in the subway and I say, I'm sorry, and they say, don't bother. Real forgiveness is a kind of thing that you really have to think about. One of the European philosophers in the 20th century said, there's no point in talking about forgiveness of anything except for that which is not forgivable. Otherwise, it doesn't. Why are we bothering about if somebody steps in my foot and, and, and uh, asks my pardon? And I take a couple of minutes to think it over and says, yes, I forgive you. That's bizarre. <laughs> Yeah. It's, a, it's like a cheap movie plot. Um, you'll be happy to know that Joshua Berman actually says Salah is not the word that's going to get us there. But if you watch for when people give a kiss on the neck, um, that action seems to be indicative of the kinds of things that we would hope to see associated with forgiveness. So he, he goes in the same, he, he, he heightens the emotional situation. So these uh, same articles that I was making fun of before, and uh, yeah, I, I'm sure that he's aware that the issue is more complicated than we sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for talking to us this late on. I hope put, uh, that is Shabbat. And uh, thank you. the same ground as the article. <laughs> there you go, and a little bit more in some ways. Uh, Dr. Shalom Carmi, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time. Thank you very much. We'll have other opportunities. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.